Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, we're going to ruin orcas. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to ruin deep sea exploration. Yeah. And the deep state. And also the the deep state. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. I know, seriously, in this episode, we have these two different topics that um, may on the surface not seem related, and they're not, but... <laughs> I think we're going to find ways that yeah. we're going to... As we get into it, we're going to really uncover, because that's what we do. We find those hidden connections. We find the ways everything is connected, and you didn't that's even right, realize. Man. That's right, But you right. kind of did realize. Because you know what? You know, now that Alex Jones is going to have to pay, you know, a billion dollars to all the parents, Sandy Hook parents he lied to, who's going to do conspiracy theories? Who, if not us? Oh, everyone? Everyone? (laughs) Yeah, I think there's there's no, there's just theories now. (gasps) That's true. That's true. So we're going to first acknowledge the passing of the most famous leaker of, Mm -hmm. I mean, He's right up there with Deep Throat, the passing of Daniel Ellsberg, who had released the Pentagon Papers, which is how we know what we know about the disaster that was the Vietnam War. And we're going to talk about secrets. And then uh, we're going to talk about uh, billionaires and the ocean, because it seems like they've uh, had a little conflict in this past week. Right. I mean, it, it dates back before this past week, but yes. This uh, very fraught relationship between very rich people and the ocean. The mighty, mighty ocean. <laughs> yes. Before we get into all of that, uh, we got to check in. Maya, how are you doing this evening and what are you drinking? Well, I've been having a lot of pain in my SI joint. I've been having some back problems and I have a, a I'm really I'm so sorry moody, to hear it's, that. It's been really unpleasant and I'm and I might even have to stand up for part of the recording. Um and then uh I have a really annoyingly moody adolescent child. That's um, redundant. That's redundant. It's I know. I know. Um and we were on vacation, which is why I was out of town and we went to Canada and I just have to briefly say Canada's better and maybe we're going to move there. Maybe we should just all You're not- just you're not going to move to Canada. Oh, Why not? Because it's just, it's not going to happen. Canada's better. It's just like, it's like the knockoff version, you know? <laughs> I, Even if the, the knockoff, knockoff version. is better it's than the better. designer. It's better. You kind of get the real deal. You know what I realized while we were up there? Because we're up there and we were in Vancouver and then we went to Vancouver Island. And, you know, Canada has plenty of... It has racists. It did Native American mm-hmm. genocide. It has extremists and religious right. And it has all of that stuff. But you know what it doesn't have? The Electoral College. Mm. And I just feel like that's the difference. That's the difference. Perhaps. I mean, they also have like a parliamentary system. So it's, it's a whole different system. It's just a really different system. And so you get to have nice things like the acknowledgement of climate change and pride signs in the most weird little rural towns and of really nice fairies that are just like really just work really well and logical and they leave on time and they're you're talking you're talking about boats now you're talking about boats now i came in (laughs) that took me a second but i got there (laughs) so i'm just saying 
we're thinking of moving to Canada. Let's just all move to Canada. Let's just all move to Vancouver Island. If we all go together, then all your friends will be there. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Okay. How are you doing? What are, oh, and I'm drinking Buffalo Trace bourbon, which I just spilled on myself as I wildly gesticulated with it. Um, Just drinking it neat? No, with ice. With ice. Wonderful. I am incredibly tired today because I had a very long day of trying to find a particular pair of shoes that I wanted to buy. I I had, you know what, listeners do not need to hear all the details. It was like a whole thing. There was gift cards involved that I wanted to spend. So I had to go to certain stores and it was like a whole thing. And um, I was near the end of my rope and leaving a DSW on 34th Street. And I don't know uh, if people who aren't familiar with New York or haven't lived in New York understand the implications of what I'm saying when I say a DSW on 34th Street. But it's not a place that I ever want to be. But um, after like two hours of hoping to find the shoes that I wanted... And I was just about to exit that store. And I was like, let me just see what they have in the children's section. And lo and behold, they had exactly what I was looking for. Um, which I'm not trying to be mysterious about is a pair of like slip-on vans. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the larger size of the child's shoe could fit my foot, um, which is not a reflection because of how- she's a freak. No, she's my a, feet are not that foot? small. I'm like a six and a half. Well, not in vans though. This was the thing. I tried on the six and a half in the vans. I'm like, this is huge. I must be a six. I tried on the six and it was still too big. And I'm like, what am I, a five and a half? Is that a thing? Don't You have to go to a special store for that. They don't make feet that small in adults. They do for um, children. Right. So the children's section, look at that. Perfect. Perfect. It was perfect. And it was much less expensive than the adult one would have been. And it was all bought on a gift card. Anyway, everything worked out. It was great. Well, what are you drinking though? Oh, uh, Chinar and um, ginger ale. That is a good drink, and I know that you like it. I yeah. still have never had Chinar. You like your bitter liqueurs, right? Yeah. Yeah, you like a Campari and things like that. I mean, it's in that vein. It's bitter. It's something, if someone is not a big drinker of bitter liqueurs, they probably would not find it very palatable at first taste. But, you know, what you have to do is you have to Try it seven times. That's the rule. And then you will love it. Fantastic. All right. I just want to briefly just talk about our last episode, which was about drag bands and trans panic. Trans panic. Um, Yeah. uh, And I just want to share that on this very day, District Court Judge Moody put down a decision that permanently enjoined Arkansas's ban on gender-affirming care for minors finding that the ban on gender-affirming care violates equal protection, due process, and free speech, and saying explicitly that trans care is not experimental care, and in fact, trans care is shown to help children not kill themselves. Right. Correct. In the Uh, legal decision. I mean, it's great. My question is, this is a, okay, this is a U.S. district judge Mm -hmm. u.s district judge yeah so it doesn't just apply it was in response to the arkansas law but this wouldn't just apply to arkansas this would make it so that similar bans would be illegal i don't know okay all right that we have to find out 
Sorry, yes. we don't know that yet, listeners, but we wanted to report that good news because it's really great. So this case has been watched as a test of whether bans or severe restrictions on trans care for minors could withstand legal challenges. Okay. So it's the first ruling to broadly block such a ban, even though some judges have temporarily delayed these bans. So it it's good that so early in this process, uh, these laws are shown to not withstand uh, yeah. civil rights challenges. At least in that district. Mm-hmm. But we also had some listener feedback that I thought was interesting. Yes, we had some feedback in response to that same episode about drag bans and uh, attacks on trans people via state legislatures that are sweeping across America right now. Um, we got a, some great tweets from listener uh, who goes by Molly Blue Dawn on Twitter at what Molly said. And there were a couple that I just thought were so worth sharing. One was um, she pointed out that, the you know, I talked about the Proud Boys and how uh, they used to come to Berkeley back in the like 2016, 2017 era, basically to provoke, to do a what they called a, a rally or a march. Yes. But it didn't have to be in Berkeley. The reason it was in Berkeley is because they were trying to provoke violent confrontations that they could then video and put on social media and so forth. And Molly was pointing out that that's the same tactic Fred Phelps followers were using at Pride events decades ago. At San Francisco Pride in the 90s, she writes, there were two teams of safety monitors, one to keep people from being run over by floats, etc., and one just to deal with situation Fred and making sure that anything that even looked like a violent confrontation when filmed from strategic angles could not start. Yes. So so that I just thought that was interesting because you're talking about decades ago, but you already have uh, the savvy of the parade organizers to realize that what they're trying to get is this video. So we're going to make sure nothing starts that could even be construed in any bad way. Um, and she also tweeted at us, I liked this one, calling trans people groomers isn't just a lie, it's projection. Mainstream heteronormative culture does groom girls to think they need to be sex objects and boys to think they should always be seeking sex. Now, I don't, I personally don't necessarily agree with using groomers or grooming to describe that phenomenon because I think that grooming well, maybe it's too late and maybe the ship has sailed, but it would be nice if that could just be a an actual useful term that means something. Like almost like a technical term. Like the, yeah, it's a I technical mean, term for a really specific in a really specific situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that's it. That's exactly what it is. What it's what it's supposed to be. It's a term for a predator yes, prepping a child uh so that they can exploit that child and it's become used very broadly for all the wrong reasons. So I understand. I, I, I appreciate Molly's point. With the, the bigger point is that if you are worried about the sexualization of children, yes, if you're thinking about uh, ways that children are exposed to ideas about sex and sexuality and encouraged to think about their own sexuality or place themselves in these sort of like sexualized roles that they're not ready for, that is absolutely a heteronormative thing. Yeah. And yeah. they do project and they do project. And finally, Molly pointed this out, which I was very appreciative of. She said, let's remember that Putin invented don't say gay. 
And one of the reasons this hate is rearing its ugly head in so many forms right now is that Putin's propaganda is being pushed all over the world by Russian trolls. I really, I feel like I can't believe we didn't talk Missed about that. Missed that part. Yeah. I mean, there is a way in which I don't want to sound like a broken record always being like, it's Russian <laughs> propaganda. Like this is Russian trolls. Like We're how get much- to that in a second. Right? Mm, I mean, it's going to uh-uh. come up. There is- a an ongoing active campaign it has not stopped so much of what you hear coming from right-wing media even from the far left media and oh yeah discourse oh yeah bears a striking resemblance to kremlin propaganda and that's not a coincidence okay it sounds so conspiratorial but it's just the fucking truth they they have an organized apparatus to make that happen it's, I mean, it's one of the things that we've talked about this before that I find the most irritating about this political moment is that the truth of what's going on makes me sound like the crazy conspiracy theorist, and I right. resent it mightily. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to mention there's some great conversations about the episode on Discord. Uh, one of our listeners was talking about having never felt comfortable with the born this way narrative, having come to their own idea of gender and sexuality in this ongoing evolving process, um, which is really, I really appreciated that perspective. Um, So thank you guys for listening. Join us, join us on patreon.com slash sauce podcast, become patrons, join us on the sauce speakeasy, come find us on the socials, email us, let us know what you think. We really, really want to hear from you. And then uh, I just want to mention one last thing, not because I want to be like, we said this first, but like kind of we did. Um, And it (laughs) means a lot to me because this piece of writing came from a writer who I'm really obsessed with, Tressie McMillan Cottom, who wrote a piece for the New York Times that um, Ted Lasso was supposed to rehab masculinity's brand. Uh, but just ended up becoming a cautionary tale about romanticizing empathy. Uh, and she describes Ted Lasso as a pop culture Ronald Reagan, trying to hmm. pretend that there's mourning again in American masculinity when it just, you know, feels that way for a second. Um, I would like to remind listeners that our Ted Lasso episode, <laughs> although we did not talk about Reagan, which it takes a writer like Cottom to put that together. It's she's a genius. But we did talk about how Ted Lasso's whole thing is about like, can you have sports without toxic masculinity? Can you even think about masculinity in a non-toxic way? And how it kind of, you know, fails and certainly ongoing as like the actor playing Ted Lasso increasingly is revealed in his like fucked up treatment of his ex-wife. I'm like, yeah, Somebody who's that devoted to seeming like the world's most perfect nice guy probably isn't. So I just really appreciated that. And I think you should read it. And I think you should also go back to our episode about Ted Lasso. We're going to jump into a topic now that neither of us really knows anything about. So this will be really fun. You know what I've, but I think that you made a really great point that there is a problem with how the story is told that is the reason that we've avoided getting to know about it. 
Exactly, exactly. But let's circle back to that after we sort of uh, introduce what we're talking about, give a little background. So Maya, you came up with the idea for this topic. Explain what we're going to be talking about. So Daniel Ellsberg, who was the famous leaker of the Pentagon Papers, passed away at the ripe old age of 92. He got to live a good long life. Uh, The Pentagon Papers were 14 volumes of all of the most secret documents tracking our slow march, despite all intelligence telling us not to go there, (laughs) to Vietnam and into the Vietnam War. It was like, it was like the collection of all of the primary documents, all the memos that took us on this inevitable fucking train wreck of the Vietnam War. And Ellsberg, who had worked as an analyst for the Rand Corporation, who had worked in the DOJ and he'd worked or worked in the State Department, he'd worked in the Department of Defense, he'd worked under the guy who worked under McNamara, he had been in the rooms for these conversations. He had been to Vietnam analyzing this material. And a few years into the war, he had a massive breakdown because he had watched for a decade as uh, people were saying, yeah, there's no good that could ever come out of building military forces and trying to engage in a war with North Vietnam. Like there's no good that will ever ever come of it. People have been saying that to him for 10 years. And this weirdly inevitable horror happened. And he kind of lost his mind. He published the Pentagon Papers. He was arrested. Uh, He, uh, this was under Nixon. Nixon tried to break into his uh, psychiatrist's office to steal documents about him, which ended up, you know, freeing him from jail. Um, And he spent the rest of his life as an advocate for this kind of openness um whistleblowing whistleblowing of government corruption yeah um and he passed away Mm -hmm. which led you to want to talk about him i think as Mm -hmm. a figure but also uh it kind of brought up some questions about other whistleblowers and leakers of government secrets which has been kind of this ongoing thrum under the past like over our past 10 years you have yeah. Chelsea Manning reality winner Edward Snowden Julian Assange this idea of leaking and right now we're dealing with Trump with his boxes and boxes and boxes of classified documents the idea of secrets and what we are to do with them and what it means to be a whistleblower is just kind of like this weird thing where I feel like I don't kind of understand the story. I don't know how to even enter it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I did want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, And going back to what we opened with in terms of why it's discomforting to think about these things, why I have not taken an interest in it or read much about it. Like I'm aware of the news that's happened over the past 10, 15 years. I know the names. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, I don't know that many of the details. Uh, And the ones that I did know, I didn't commit to memory very well. Though I did see the Snowden movie. Um, I find it really uncomfortable to have to confront um, these questions about why a government in a democratic society would have secrets from the very people who 
according to the concept of democracy, are the government, right? We as informed citizens are not electing people to then have like authoritarian control over us, right? We are supposed to be continue to be informed so we can continue to elect people who are making decisions that we approve of. How can we know if we approve of them or their decisions if we don't actually know the information on which they're basing their decisions? It actually kind of makes no sense. And in our culture, in American culture, and maybe this extends beyond America, I'm sure it does, there is the idea that this is perfectly normal. It is totally normal for a government to have secrets from its people, even a democratic government. And um, the big reason given for that is national security, the safety of the citizens, right? And that relies on this assumption that we are going to be engaged in warfare, or at least the process of trying to avoid war. Right, <laughs> right. Like, let's pretend that's what's happening. Well, okay. So that's the thing. One of the things that that I had been thinking about when um, when Trump was inaugurated, I had my surrealism and video class watch the inauguration. It was a surrealist act. And I was talking to them about how surrealism was all about undermining our values and making it really clear what we politically really thought and having to face our own hypocrisies. And I said to them, look... When I see Trump, I feel like he he sullies the dignity of the office. But what does that teach me? That I believe in the dignity of the presidential office. So what the fuck is wrong with me that I believe in that, <laughs> right? And so I feel like right. that's that's similar as I feel like these cases are this weird reflection of how we've been trained in a certain way. And I certainly I know I've mentioned this before. Certainly being the child of Israelis and Israelis are so all about their secret services and they are so about <laughs> heroizing Mossad and they're so mm -hmm. about like, and we love spy movies. I mean, that's part of it. Like we love the idea yeah. of this secret craft of this team of people who really know, like going and doing things mm -hmm. we never know about, but why we like the movies is because we feel like we get a little window into it, super sexy. Like my values absolutely not about that. And I am still susceptible to it. So what does that reveal about me and what I think about what the government really is, how I've been trained? Right. Like we all very readily accept this idea that um, there are people who should know more than we know. Mm -hmm. They should know stuff we don't know. And um, we can. you can always justify the need for secrets because you have to protect your intelligence gathering methodologies. You have to protect your assets, your human assets. Um, even in diplomacy, there's information you don't want the other side to know that your side is talking about, so you can't simply make it public. There are conversations there are, between the different sides that we don't learn about until like 20 years right. later. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's the thing. It's like, where is the line between what has to be kept secret because the mission requires it, whatever that mission may be? That's a whole other question. But like, let's assume it's a good mission, whatever it is. Okay, in order to accomplish it, secrets must be kept. But then once you accept that, then you're accepting that your government is the one who's going to make the judgment about what secrets need to be kept and what doesn't need to be kept secret. And it's like you're asking the people to trust in the good judgment 
of a government that um, is working in the best interests of its people. Like we have to make that assumption and you can't really question it. You know, and every once in a while there's a leak, you know, every once in a while there's a whistleblower stuff comes out that reveals that like, oh, there was top secret stuff going on that actually didn't need to be kept secret and probably didn't need to be happening. And we yes. should know about that yes. stuff. But this actually gets to one of the things I kind of want to talk about. Um, Maya shared with me an article from several years ago, from like 2017, maybe, um, by Malcolm Gladwell, of all people, about Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers and the ways in which his story is different from Edward Snowden's story. If people don't remember, that was in like, what, like 2012 mm -hmm. around then? Yeah. Snowden was working as a contractor, like at the NSA. And I mean, he was basically an IT guy. He was yeah. doing computer stuff, uh, as the best I understand it. But um, he stole a whole trove of documents and information, classified stuff, uh, and handed over to the press. He worked with um, Glenn Greenwald and... Uh, Glenn Greenwald won a Pulitzer for his work Pul on that well, story. Yeah. The, the, the big reveal was that the NSA was... Not that the NSA was spying on Americans. We all knew that already. But that they were um, gathering phone data, that they were sort of harvesting mass amounts of phone data from Americans who were not like uh, under... Uh, any kind you of know, warrant. Any kind of warrant, yeah, yeah or subpoena or right. whatever. It was just, they were doing that en masse. So th there were some really interesting things in that piece by Malcolm Gladwell that I just wanted to point out. One of them is, um, so I don't want to give Malcolm Gladwell too much credit. He's actually referring to a book or a study published in the Harvard Law Review uh, and it's called The Leaky Leviathan, in which David Posen attempts to understand the sort of puzzle of why so few leakers are prosecuted. And the logic here is, uh, if you look at journalism, it relies on leaks. Leaks are incredibly common. It's happening all the time. And when you compare the number of prosecutions for leaking government secrets against the number of articles that have been written that are depending on leakers and leaked secrets, uh, the math doesn't add up. It's like a tiny fraction of a percent of possibly, you know, conservatively, maybe 3% of leakers who are getting prosecuted. So why would that be? And Posen, in, in brief, in summary, it, it sort of comes to the conclusion that leaks help the government. And one of the ways they do is that the government can plant leaks. The government can purposefully leak things to frame the narrative, let people know things they want people to know, but that technically they're not supposed to reveal. And they can avoid the appearance that everything bad about the administration is being swept under the rug. Right. Which creates more suspicion. That's right. Right? If you leak a few things that make the administration look bad then people feel satisfied that they are seeing behind the curtain the bad things. And it doesn't, it's actually less suspicious than if no leaks are coming out. So that's why the government plants leaks. But in order for the plant system to work, you have to water it, 
the met it's not my metaphor it's Posen's metaphor with leaks um you have to uh have real leaks going on otherwise they have no validity they lose all of their credibility because everyone knows that the information they're getting is being um edited by the government so they have to allow a certain amount of real leaks so it's always a mystery to the reader even to the reporters is this a government plant leaking me something on purpose or is this a real leaker a whistleblower it's just part of the sort of symbiotic relationship between the white house and the press that is the leaks and the we do and the kind of don't ask don't tell attitude of like We'll take leaks at face value if it's good information and we'll report it. And in return, the White House will continue allowing a certain amount of leaks and not prosecuting them. And um, we'll get the benefit of planting leaks when they need to. And what I do want to say, so I've been reading since Ellsberg's death, I've been reading his memoir about the Pentagon Papers uh, called Secrets. And he writes, it is a commonplace that you can't keep secrets in Washington. These truisms are flatly false. They are, in fact, cover stories, ways of flattering and misleading journalists and their readers, part of the process of keeping secrets well. And mm. he, which, that that actually, like, the leaking of secrets is a way of keeping actual secrets. And he talked about how once he was inside the government, his awareness of how easily and pervasively Congress, the public, and journalists were fooled and misled contributed to a lack of respect for them and their potential contributions to better policy. And that in turn made it easier to accept, to participate in, to keep quiet about practices of secrecy and deception that fooled them further and kept them ignorant of the real issues that were occupying and dividing inside policymakers. So... Mm. He says, and this is in one of the, like, it's in the second chapter of the book where he's like, anybody who says that, like, ooh, you know, don't say anything, you don't want to end up on the front page of the New York Times, like the vast majority of the secrets that we are keeping, we keep them very well. <laughs> right, right. So does it mean something that just in the past, like, 10 years, we've seen Chelsea Manning gets sentenced to 35 years in prison, though she didn't serve all of it. Her sentence was commuted, commuted by, by Obama. Obama. We've seen uh, Julian Assange get charged, though he hasn't been extradited. But he was charged with like 17 counts. I'm making that number up. But like some number of counts of, of violations of the Espionage Act for publishing the leaked information that Manning leaked to him and to WikiLeaks. I mean, there there was no evidence from what I've read that he solicited that information or those documents from her or that he, like, coerced her. As I understand it, the charges are just for publishing the classified information, which feels like it that is like a whole new world. It's just like kind of crossing a Rubicon or something where uh, it, the press, the whole way this symbiotic relationship works, the whole way that this um, system of approved leaks works, which is supposed to keep the government in power and reinforce government power, it only works if the press is not afraid that they will be prosecuted for publishing this classified information. 
And and so um, Assange has been charged. And of course, you also have Snowden, who I don't believe, has he been charged? Uh, I think he was charged, but who knows? He's a citizen of Russia now. Yeah. Right. He, <laughs> he fled the country immediately and uh, took refuge in Russia, where he's now a citizen. But also um, reality and winner. And reality winner. Mm-hmm. Who, who translated a document that is the most detailed U.S. government account of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Uh, mm-hmm. And was put away for five years. Um, this feels like, given what that uh, 2017 Malcolm Gladwell piece was pointing out about the very few and far between prosecutions, not for mishandling of classified information, which is a different crime. Uh, that actually gets prosecuted fairly often. Um, but for leaking. Yes. For leaking classified yes. information. It seems like there have been multiple high-profile incidents of that happening, has something changed? Is there something different about these latter-day leakers compared to your classic Ellsberg Pentagon Papers whistleblower thing? Well, so in terms of that, uh, there were two articles that provided a couple of theories that we're very compelled by Mm. and I think should be thinking about moving forward. One of them is the idea of the insider versus outsider leaker, Mm -hmm. where Ellsberg was the most insider insider in the whole fucking world. He could not have been more of an insider, uh, which gave him... I mean, he he helped write the Pentagon Papers. He helped write many of the memos that were in the Pentagon Papers. Uh, And then this idea of the sort of latter-day leakers, like the insider versus the outsider and the older versus the new. And... I feel like with the insider versus outsider, a lot of Ellsberg's legitimacy is because he was like, I bought into all of this. I'm the most Mm. insider insider. So when I tell you this was a fucking problem, it really is. I don't have any other like this is me and my conscience as, as an American, as a Cold War warrior, which he calls himself. And he's able to say like, no, this is important. Yeah. It's a person having a crisis of conscience where, I mean, when you look at Snowden, for example, I do think he genuinely like thought he was doing the right thing and releasing information that people needed to know. But it was, he was not involved in the creation of those policies in any way. He was not in the room where it happened. Um, He actually stole, like he used his hacking skills basically to steal that information. But it was also very much about demonstrating the accessibility into hacking. Like the fact that we're in this moment where everything is digital, anything can be touched. All I can touch all these documents. So that was almost part of what he was performing. Very much Was this. Well, and I think that that's interesting with Assange, the technology aspect of it. Because I think that... um, it, I can quite see how in the Department of Justice's eyes or in the minds of people making decisions there, somehow this new media, this new internet phenomenon where secrets can be so quickly transmitted and then published uh, must feel very different from your, you know, like deep throat, I'm going to meet you in a parking lot somewhere. Or I'm going to, I mean, the pen, the Pentagon Papers were like volumes and volumes and volumes of thousands of pages. And the Xerox technology was still such that he Xeroxed it a page at a time. A page at a time. For months. <laughs> like, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was like a painstaking long effort to get that just to just get that photo copied. Yeah. I, I think the technology is a piece of it. And the ease with which these uh, outsider leakers are able to access the information and then also transmit it and the ease with which it can be published. I also think um, the structure, like I do not know enough about this and maybe we could have on someone who does know about it who could like help us out because I get the sense that the structure of the whole classified information, who has access, who has security clearance and at what levels has changed. And when you have contractors like Snowden being hired to do work uh, that involves having access to very highly classified yeah. information. Yeah. He's just a contractor. Totally. And and Chelsea Manning, you know, she she was an intelligence analyst and had access to all that stuff, but she's talked about how they were working 12-hour days. There just weren't enough people there. They stopped caring right. about protocol, right. about, you know, right. the preservation of secrets because they were so fucking overworked. And, like, uh, there seems to be something there in terms of, you know, outsourcing jobs to contractors and I think a proliferation of what is classified. There's more classified material than there used to be, which to me seems like what's inevitably going to happen when you give a government the right, the permission to classify things as they see fit. And since it's classified, we as citizens can't, I mean, what oversight do we have? We have to accept. If they say it's classified, there must be a reason. This doesn't seem like it can hold. No, but I also feel like there was another article that we read from back in that time on the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Garance Franke Ruta. Mm-hmm. Um, where she writes about, so yeah, this is about technology this is about hacking. This is about seeing what you can touch and what you can get access to. Gladwell talks about it, about the difference between like a leaker and a hacker. This almost like philosophical dis- difference, this philosophical right. approach that's completely different. A leaker is one thing. A hacker is another thing. And the sort of desire of a hacker to sow chaos, to show how far they can reach into a system is different than a leaker who's like, I'm here and you need to know this. Um, but uh, Garantz, uh Ruta talks about the kind of libertarian streak in what we might think of as the latter-day leaker, where it's it's about this individual as opposed to like group decision-making. I don't know. I'm not explaining it well. Well, the article from back in 2012 um, includes a quotation from a David Brooks Oh my God, are we about to quote David Brooks like in a good way? I actually am. Oh my God. Brooks writes, if you live a life unshaped by the mediating institutions of civil society, perhaps it makes sense to see the world a certain way. Life is not embedded in a series of gently gradated authoritative structures, family, neighborhood, religious group, state, nation, and world. Instead, it's just the solitary naked individual and the gigantic and menacing state. I read that. I was like, I can't believe how astute that paragraph was by David Brooks. Now, I haven't read the whole column, so maybe when you put it in context, in he fact, can already, he can really. Yeah, I'm sure he turns it into some something really some, stupid. Yeah, he yeah. Can, he can always really lose. 
he can yeah 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 yeah, exactly every time he he might be onto something and i'm sure for david brooks the series of gently gradated authoritative structures is very good and important yes and and authority is good and important and in and a normal healthy person respects all of that and that's the part where i might take issue but he's not wrong in that those are ways of seeing the world yes and that uh, for a lot of people, I would say most people, they do rather unquestioningly accept a lot of authoritative structures in their life, uh, overlapping, interacting web of authoritative institutions and structures. And um, this Snowden sort of character, the hacker leaker, you know, he characterizes it the solitary, naked individual and the gigantic and menacing state. And this writer, Garance Franke Ruta, forgive me if I'm saying her name incorrectly, she goes on to dive into that idea and has a quotation from Snowden where he says, you can't come forward against the world's most powerful intelligence agencies and be completely free from risk because they're such powerful adversaries. No one can meaningly oppose them. And she is like, that's not true. (laughs) People meaningfully oppose the government all, all the, time. the time. Okay, and I think that this, but through collective th- action. That's right. Not through like individual hacker. And like, I have this to sort of say, like libertarian esque. It's all about me. me. And this is thinking. actually where I feel like maybe why I have avoided these stories, even though Ellsberg, to his dying breath. His like final wish was that mm. leakers should leak, leak that You're shit. Right? No, he was like free Julian Assange. Yeah, like yeah. To, to his dying breath. But the ways that these things have been deployed, where a lot of different people were like, look at what the Obama administration is doing, but they're not talking about how the laws Obama is exploiting were passed under the Patriot Act. Like there's this way where people use it for their own political ends. And yeah. there isn't a clear understanding of the of the things that put these structures right. in place. The structural, yeah, deeper, like, what does this say about our actual institutions, about our, our democracy and how it functions? And, and, and also, you have things like Julian Assange and WikiLeaks being very involved in the Russian interference oh my God. in the 2016 election. Yeah. Like, Having yeah. a direct line of communication with Roger Stone. Yeah. And yeah. And that makes you go like, mm. okay, I see this is happening now, but is this what was happening all along? Mm-hmm. This is, again, an area where I'm actually genuinely asking this question because I don't know that much about Julian Assange because I've avoided because he's also kind of a really gross person. But also I've avoided these stories because of how they're politicized in different moments. And I've avoided these stories because it makes me too uncomfortable to think about what my role is in a government that's doing horrible things all the times secretly and not knowing what, what my fucking job is, especially when there's so much power in the executive. And I mean, no, because uh, when we have these conversations, we don't ask those questions. It's never what our job is. It's like, who did the bad? What we don't question are the fundamental, the 
underlying bedrock assumptions and beliefs about, of course, the government should have secrets. Yes, yes. The government, like, the government can't do its job of protecting us without secrets. Yes, bad things happen, and there's whistleblowers. And it's almost like the whistleblowers make it worse. Yes. Because they give everyone the impression that when bad things do happen, we'll find out about it. Right. We'll come out. Right. And And it's like maybe or maybe there's a shit ton more of really bad way worse shit that we've never found out about but that's the it thing didn't get but that's but that's the thing is that then you read Ellsberg and you're like he's like we all knew this the whole time we knew mm-hmm. this was a shit show that was going to fail the whole time and you're like well had that information gotten out before and he talks about being in the room where it happens and how part of getting to be in the big boy's room is that you can't say in front of your boss that you disagree, which means that as things are going, even if he feels one way about it, if he's asked to do it the other way, he's going to keep doing it the other way. And so it sort of gains its own momentum and speed. And I feel like that's the sort of, that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. So we've talked about something that it's hard to know what to think about. It's hard to know where to intervene, even conceptually. Hmm. But here, I think we know. I think we know exactly how we feel about it. And that is that, like, go, go, orcas. Go fucking destroy yeah. boats, man. Go, orcas. Go, go orcas. orcas. It's your birthday. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. Let's talk about this. We, there, we've noticed a trend over the past few weeks, and we like it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, we a do. Tr- it's a trend of wealthy people being at odds with the ocean with the ocean depths, <laughs> really. I mean, we have a spectacular example of rich people f- failing to master the ocean. But let's start with the orcas. Yes. So tell us what's been going on. All right. In brief, if anyone hasn't been following this amazing news, um, in the past few months, Here, I'll read you a quotation from New Scientist because I thought this was such a beautiful summary. In the past few months, there have been several reports of orcas severely damaging sailing boats off the coast of Spain and Portugal. At least a dozen whales are taking part in the activity, sparking a flurry of speculation over whether the orcas may be teaching each other how to bring down boats and organizing into an army. Yes. Now, this army, this this group of orcas is led by a ringleader named White Gladys, who has been, I mean, fucking White Gladys, Gladys. come on, man. Just by the numbers, there have been more than 500 reports of orca encounters off the Iberian Peninsula. Most of them involve minimal to moderate damage, like boats getting pushed, maybe spun, rudders have been smashed or destroyed. Um, but recently, three vessels have been so badly damaged they've sunk. And, you know, I feel like there's something about this story where I think for a lot of us, I can only say for myself, why do I love this story? I love this story because it feels like nature's fighting back against environmental destruction by man, and man is getting fought back against. And like, they should, they should, we all should. Nature should be coming to our fucking door and being like, yeah, 
Like, yeah, get the fuck out. Get yeah. the fuck out. Like, there are terrible declining numbers of orcas. I'm getting emails from the Center for Biological Diversity like every day about declining numbers of whales. And it feels like this last stand. Mm-hmm. It feels very heroic. It feels very much like in this time of climate despair, which I experience on an hourly basis, uh, that you're like, yeah, fucking fight it, orcas. Fight, fight, orcas. Fight for your right. Like, it just... Yeah. Uh, Anyone who has any moral compass or like sense of like ethics is pro orcas, team orca, right? Hundred percent. Team Gladys, hundred percent. What makes it so fascinating, it really is that um orcas, who which are not whales, they're dolphins. Very large dolphins, yeah. Very large dolphins. They um are incredibly intelligent. They're very intelligent animals. Um, but they're known to have culture, which is what I find really fascinating. Different pods of orcas do different things. Like some of them hunt seals and will like toy with the seals, like a cat playing with a mouse uh, before eating them. And um, some of them will hunt baby gray whales and they do it in a particular cooperative way where the pod works together to separate the baby whale from a mom. They're really actually also very horrible creatures in a lot of ways. Um, there's some that live, I think it was in the Mediterranean, but don't quote me on that part of it, but there's some orcas that, um, they stay in the depths and they wait until they hear the sound of the sort of winching of, um, tuna fishermen pulling in their catch. Yeah. And then they go steal the albacores. You know how big albacore tunas are? Yeah. So they just wait until they hear the sound of the fishing boats like winching up. Well, the, also, the line. I mean, if we're going to talk about culture, there was a trend briefly of orcas wearing salmon hats. This is correct. Um, uh, in 1987, a female southern resident killer whale from K Pod started carrying a dead salmon on her head. Within weeks, two other pods had learned the same behavior. And then the behavior ceased the following summer, which is an example of a temporary cultural fad. It was just, it was a fashion thing, you know? Yeah. This, this, influence, this influencer, this, this orca <laughs> influencer was just like, look what I can do. And the other <sighs> whales imitated it and it was like all the rage. And then they got tired of it. That is so last season. That is so. They were so over it. it. So I feel like what we're doing right now is what this one article in the Atlantic from some fucking child named Jacob Stern being like, we shouldn't like that. We shouldn't be rooting for the orcas. They're dangerous. No, you have to. You have to read the exact title of this piece in the Atlantic. (laughs) Killer whales are not our friends. Stop rooting for the orcas ramming boats. It's like, are you a fucking boat? Like, what the fuck? I mean, his name is Jacob Stern. Writing for The Atlantic. But it's it's so, I feel like. It's a put on, right? The way that he misses the point. It's a put, it's got to be a put on. But also the way that he so misses the point. Like, we are rooting for them because we are seeing the dying of our planet by our own hands. And like one of the things, you know, I think about a lot, which the, there's a whole Star Trek movie about this. It's like by the time our parents were born, the whales were almost all gone. You know, like a mm-hmm. lot of this like mass extinction of the bounty of the natural world had happened by the dawn of the 20th century. And these these moments of 
res- what could feel like resistance, uh, we do anthropomorphize it. We do. And we also want the animals to survive. Right. Come on. I mean, I- I'm split on the anthropomorphizing thing because they are so intelligent. Maybe I am too influenced by the, what was it, 1978 film, Orca, with Bo Derek, Or by Blackfish, by the documentary, the documentary about SeaWorld. I mean, mean, we all all have seen Blackfish. Have I I told you my story of when I saw the whale die at SeaWorld? Oh my God, no. Should I tell it? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. All right. So long time listeners know we grew up in San Diego, which yes. means that a huge part of our childhood was going to SeaWorld, We're which we did at SeaWorld. Many, we had season many passes. T- that's correct. Every year. Correct. Yeah. All right. So when, I mean, I must've been, I think I was in high school and, um, we went to see the Shamu show and there was a baby Shamu, one of the whales had given birth recently. There was a pup and it was very exciting and they were promoting it. Um, We came in and, oh, people, if you haven't been to SeaWorld, you walk into the theater, the amphitheater of the Shamu show and you you walk by the tank and the whales are in there cavorting and the little baby whale was coming up to the glass and responding to the people and there was interaction happening. It was like real cute. And um, this is bad. This is a trigger warning, you guys. Like, you might not want to hear this. <laughs> oh, you never um, told me this story. Okay. I can't believe I've never told you this story. So um, they bring out baby Shamu. The, the mother and the baby were swimming around, and they just couldn't get them to do tricks. Like, I can't remember if they were they just had the baby at first, and it wasn't doing tricks, so they let the mom out, or if it was both of them. But they, they weren't responding. And they were like, you know, folks, they're, they're wild animals. We can't force them to do anything if they're not feeling up to it. We're sorry. We're, we're going to bring on some different whales for you. So there's the giant pool where their whales are performing. And there's these like backstage pools on the left and the right side. There's like a stage left and stage right yeah. exit for the whales. Yeah. Well, the other people who may not oh, have been to okay. SeaWorld may not know this. Okay. Much. Okay. And so from my point of view, they uh, are sending off the baby Shamu and his mother toward the left. And they sort of are just about to, they're like opening the like gate to let her and the baby into that. And then they open up on the right side of the big front tank. They open the gate for the other whale to come in and take their place. And it was like, it happened in such a flash. Like it was so fast. The whale who came on on the right side sped across the tank and collided with the mother. And there was just this crash of whales. And then the trainers heard, got the whales apart somehow, and Shamu and the mother went where they were supposed to go, and the other whale that had sped across and attacked them was brought back to her pen on the right side. And this is where it's a little gruesome. We saw when she came up to breathe, you know, the water spouts out. It was yeah. blood. It was full of blood. Oh, yeah. Um, and they were like, we're sorry. Uh, please exit the stadium. Do not exit in the front by the tank. Please exit through the rear exits. Yeah. And <laughs> and then so we were like, well, that was really weird. 
And um, we came back a little uh, time later, maybe a couple hours later after we'd done other stuff at the park and everything was shutting down and the Shamu show was not ongoing. They had shut it down and we spoke to like someone who was sort of standing guard outside and we're like, what's going on? What happened? And he said that the the whale died. The, the one, attacking whale. The attacking whale had died. And we learned later that this is a behavior that whales sometimes do in the wild where they ram each other. It's like a dominance behavior. And the whale who had done the attacking was sort of like like the nanny or nursemaid to the um, baby. baby. That they do that in the wild. The, the mother takes care of the baby, but there's like a, like a godmother. So apparently the whale was engaging in what is normally a non- harmful like dominance behavior where they ram each other but it doesn't really hurt each other but she hit the other whale like at a bad angle and broke her jaw and yeah the again it's gonna be a little gruesome the bone fragments basically like severed her arteries and she was not gonna live yeah (laughs) are you glad i shared that story i don't think i should have shared it (laughs) okay wow wow i can't believe i never told you that yeah like it was nuts that is nuts it was so horrifying oh my god it was so shocking it was like you just we we saw like a tail fly in the air we're like what just happened and then this poor whale and i mean the baby was fine and the mama was fine uh yeah but now mama doesn't have child care right not fine not fine not fine well, <laughs> back to team, team Gladys, team Orca, but also <laughs> team Ruins of the Titanic. I mean, so this is part two of our billionaires versus the ocean moment. There is a, a submarine that is like private for wealthy people submarine that's supposed to be taking rich people for tours down down, down into the deep, deep depths. To see the Titanic wreckage. To see the wreckage of the Titanic. Yes. The company is called Ocean Gate, mm-hmm. which right there, you're like, that's an interesting choice for a name. And so uh, I don't know. Do you know if this was their maiden voyage of this service or if this is something they've done in the past? No, I mean, I don't know if it was their maiden voyage to the Titanic ruins, uh, but a journalist had covered them doing some kind of trip a year ago and they lost signal for five hours. Yeah. So what has happened, uh, in case anyone hasn't been following, is that the submersible, this little itty bitty submarine thing, went down with um, the CEO of the company and three wealthy, I'm going to assume they're wealthy because they paid $250,000 yes. for this opportunity, people. One of them I know is a billionaire. Yes. And um, it, it went down and uh, then the the surface ship lost contact. Just lost contact. And, and that was like it, days ago? Days ago, yeah. And, and the submersible can only really go down for four days. Yeah, because it only has, there's only so much oxygen. Yes, that it can And the carry. thing is... The, the submersible itself has no navigation capacities. All of the navigation is done by text messaging with the boat on the surface and then following their instructions, which is like, wow. Mm. 
So why is this interesting? Well, so many reasons. One is who the hell does this? Like, it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. And this is not like a long established company with great credentials and all like the best underwater science people working on it. And you can be like really sure that you're in the best hands. It's really not one of those situations. No. And in fact, one of their employees was fired for being like, hey, guys, could we look at some of these safety issues? And then ended up suing the company for firing him. So Mm. Yeah, that's a Mm. red flag. That's a red flag. A little bit Um, of a red flag. And I don't know if it's like this idea that rich people have, which is that if we're paying this much, it's got to be okay. That seems to be the attitude. What The billionaire guy, I don't know his name, and I'm not going to learn it, um, but (laughs) he apparently is like an explorer. He's big in the world of exploring because exploring is rich people paying obscene amounts of money to go to places where people aren't supposed to go. Yes, that's right. That's quote unquote exploring. And and paying obscene amounts of money for other people to just figure that out. It's figure not like they're out. like, I'm going to figure out how to do this hike. I'm going to engineer it. I'm gonna, This is going to be my hobby. It's tourism. It's a, it's a very specific it kind of tourism. It is a very specific kind of tourism. I mean, you look, there's a whole conversation to be had about why you would want to actually see the wreckage of the Titanic. And there's an argument to be made that that might be interesting and is not totally ghoulish. And I don't really want to get into that. Um, I am just boggled. I cannot get my head around the idea that you would put yourself in this situation because of the potential for things to go wrong. Yes. You are relying on the boat on the surface and your ability to communicate with them to know where the hell you're going. What happens if there's a medical emergency on your little fucking capsule of death? Absolutely. What, what happens if you lose power? What Like, do they have contingency plans for these things? And that's all assuming that the vessel itself does withstand the pressure and isn't just imploded. Look. Yes. Hey. I'm a human being. I hope that they are found alive and safe. I suppose there is still a small chance of that happening. It seems like the most likely thing is that they just died instantaneously in in an implosion when they were crushed by the yes, as opposed to being as opposed to freaking out that they are like sitting here losing two hours of air, like they're too as opposed to slowly losing oxygen over days. One of the people who had sort of done an article about it the year before, who had been on the navigating ship, not in the sub. He was a journalist, I guess, as a journalist. They're not going to let a journalist take up one of those $100,000 seats, right? Um, But he reported that a year ago when he was just on the navigation boat, they lost contact for five hours. Like, it's not like this was a thing that was so... They didn't have everything down to T, but they I mean, did like, not. I, I would question like what kind of redundancies they had in place. You know, like NASA's right. thing is redundancies, right? And shit still goes wrong with NASA. And the people there are like the smartest fucking people in the world that deal with those problems. And I don't know what level of people we're talking about here. Here's what I do know. The New York Times obtained a letter that was sent to Ocean Gate's chief executive... Stockton Rush. The guy's name is Stockton Rush, by the way. Oh, God. 
by the, get this, it was written by the Manned Underwater Vehicles Committee of the Marine Technology Society, a 60-year-old trade group that aims to promote ocean technology and educate the public about it. Like, sure, that of course that's a thing. Why would that not be a thing? Um, but these folks who want to promote ocean technology and educate the public about it, more than three dozen signatories, including oceanographers, submersible company executives, and deep-sea explorers, warned that they had unanimous concern about OceanGate's development of the Titan submersible, the one in question. Uh, it, the letter grew out of fears of what could happen if the company did not stick to established standards. Oh. This is what I, I don't get, is like, if you're going to pay, two, I, okay, $200,000 is pocket change for a billionaire, but it's really less that, and it's really more the um, risking your life. I, what makes it so, I don't want to say funny, it's not funny. I mean, because these are human being people and this is their lives and they have loved ones and all of that stuff. But there is a kind of a weird poetry about going to see the wreckage of the Titanic and for this to happen in that uh, endeavor, especially given all of the very wealthy people, extremely wealthy people who died aboard the Titanic because the Builders of the Titanic and promoters of the Titanic and captain of the Titanic all ignored standard practices and best practices yeah. in an attempt to try to be impressive. It just yep. hubris. Human hubris versus the vast ocean. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I'm team ocean. I mean, it's not about picking a team because there's no contest. That's right. The the dark, freezing depths of the North Atlantic are going to win. Okay, listeners, we have a little more to say about the <laughs> Titan submersible saga. Uh, we're recording this a few days later than we originally recorded our conversation, because as you heard, at the time when we were recording, we didn't know for certain what had happened. What was the fate of those passengers and that submarine. Although apparently we could have known very easily. Mm. No, they said that like there was a sound of an implosion, like right. the US Navy right. had the, the information. The Navy heard the sound of an implosion, but from everything I've heard from everyone who has any knowledge of those things, undersea sounds are not super reliable. Uh, a lot There's a lot of noise down there. So even though they detected what we now know was the implosion of the Titan. Um, it's impossible to confirm just based on the sound. They, they could have a really good hunch, but you, you have to keep the search up in case until you have corroborating evidence that it actually was the implosion. You can't rely on just that sound. And they did find the corroborating evidence where they sent uh, a sort of little robot down to the bottom and found a debris field with recognizable parts from specifically the Titan sub from so the that Titan. they know that when they lost communications a couple of hours into the trip, it was when the craft imploded. And all the people aboard perished. Yes. As we suspected. Yes. Might have been the case. And it was a quick end, as I understand. You know what it made me think of? What? What did it make you think of? There was that amazing book um, 
by the writer John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which was <laughs> all about wild public various cancellations of various people. And yes. one of the stories is about this woman who um, made a very tacky tweet because she was on her way to Africa and she made a very tacky tweet about like, oh, but don't get AIDS. And she was on the plane for like, you know, a very long plane flight for like 16 hours and not knowing that she was going viral and the entire the time. Her, her, yeah. Her and like everyone was, was hating end. her. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it felt like that. It felt like one of those things where we were all as one. I mean, we have so few things that are live, like mm. the liveness of the waiting of the countdown of the oxygen it's this thing that we can all connect with as this live thing happening right now. Definitely. And it's such a high level of drama because of the stakes and because of the unusual circumstances. Absolutely. Narratively, it was really unavoidable. Yeah. And people get really mad as well. They should. And I'm mad too that like there are refugees, you know, hundreds of refugees who died on a boat in the Mediterranean, nobody gives a shit about them, but right. five billionaires in a tin can going to see the Titanic, and it's like all anybody can think about, including me. Like, I was completely yeah. having images of like, is one person going to kill the other people in the cell? Like, I, I make the <laughs> I mean, air it's a question longer. when you're doing like, the math about that. Yeah. Air, about oh the God. oxygen, how much Did is they left? at least throw like a bunch of Xanax in there so that in case they're stuck and dying, are they- Matt they was saying if he ever had to get on a- you know, in a submarine like that, he would bring a bottle of pills just in case. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, that would be the way to go. You'd want to be asleep. I mean, there were people on the news talking about how they probably are in hypothermia at this point if they're alive and that that's good because it would slow down their breathing and they'd use less oxygen if they are having hypothermia. But anyway, I want to talk about some of the things we've learned. This is why we're adding this addendum, really, not just because we've learned that, in fact, it imploded and they're dead. But also, I've learned the answers to some of the questions that I had when we were originally recording. Correct. For example, I learned that, indeed, this was not the first voyage of the Titan. Um, it had made several trips to the Titanic wreckage with tourists in it. Um, I think maybe like about 11 trips, like five or six last year and five or six the year before. So it it had done it and been successful. It had worked. The thing about that is the fact that the submarine was able to successfully dive once, twice, even 10 or 11 times doesn't mean it's going to be successful on the 12th time because that's not how that works. With every dive and resurface cycle, there is fatigue, the materials fatigue. There's wear and tear because the pressures are so intense at that depth that like even steel, even very hard metals shrink or expand or get warped. And you have like the hull being made of carbon fiber and titanium. Those two materials are not going to react the same way to the pressure. So even if they like fit together perfectly now... <laughs> When subjected to pressure, that can change. And when subjected to pressure, 
multiple times, eventually they're going to experience failure. And this was the concern that many hundreds, because <laughs> that's another thing we're learning. There is a wildly huge community of Titanic explorers, of deep sea diving deep explorers, sea, yeah. of companies that do this. I mean, the, the military's many years of submersible right. objects. And many hundreds of people had said publicly that this was a really bad idea, that this yes. material well, was not... Specifically, yes, yes that, that, that this specific submarine... Yes. The Titan... Yes, specifically the Ocean's Gate idea. Titan, yes. Yeah, yeah. As we talked about already, yes. um, there, there was that whole letter saying that it hasn't been properly certified. Um, you also talked about the employee who was fired for bringing up safety concerns. In particular, he noted that the viewport window was only certified to 1,300 meters. The Titanic wreckage is at about 4,000 meters. Oh. And um, another concern that that employee who was fired had was about uh, the testing. He, he pointed out that they were using a form of testing to test the materials that was basically, as it went down, they would listen. And if they heard any creaking or sort of buckling sounds, they would know that the materials were failing. You know, the problem with this being, listeners, if you haven't caught on yet, once you're hearing those sounds, it's failing. The, the craft <laughs> is failing, and it could be, not necessarily, but it could be on the verge of implosion. And they weren't performing other testing. Now, I, I feel like this gets us to something that we have talked about a lot and unfortunately giving the state of things in this country are going to have to talk about more at this time of extreme economic inequity, which mm. is that the wealthy, you know, heir to multiple fancy robber baron families in San Francisco CEO who was piloting the Titan and died in this group uh, was very like, whatever, I'm disrupting the industry. There are emails from him being like, pish tosh, they're trying to make me test this shit. We don't have to test this shit. Oh, yeah. There's interviews yeah. that are now all over social media where the guy is saying, yeah, everyone says you can't make a submarine with carbon fiber, but we're going to do it anyway. Right, which is very Silicon Valley. It is very yes. like... Man, all these rules, all these fucking bureaucracies, no way. And this idea that money makes you immune from the basic laws right. of physics. And and I want to say, we have one thing that I think both Rebecca and I have really been enjoying, and I'm not a huge James Cameron fan, is that not all rich people are total fucking idiots. As we've been witnessing with uh, learning about the film director James Cameron's uh, profound, like clearly his hobby since becoming the multi-gajillionaire that he is, is deep sea exploration. Yeah, yeah. In, in line with what you're saying about Silicon Valley and the disruptor mindset or attitude. All those years um, of expertise. What do they know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Acting like... Acting like you're inventing things yes. for the first time. 
And, and this is like that to the nth degree, because like we were saying a moment ago, this is an established science. People have been taking submarines down to very deep depths for a long time, and hobbyists and interested companies and people have been advancing the science. And that is a big point James Cameron was making. He was on a CNN interview and he called it, he said, this is a mature art, was his point. There have been advancements, like we have built on what we know and at this point can do sophisticated things. You don't need a disruptor company to come in and say, we can do it cheaper or faster or with more passengers. Like, and um, yes, Cameron, as a wealthy person, an extremely wealthy person who wants to go to places where people aren't supposed to go, which is apparently a thing that happens when you reach like a certain level of wealth. But he actually to his credit, appears to have been doing it right. He commissioned the creation of this deep sea vessel, the Deep Sea Challenger. And I have to say, I, I learned a lot about it from this thread on Twitter that I want we'll to recommend to We'll share it. We'll share it on the... The author of the thread it calls herself Flying Lady Doctor Says. That's her handle, and it's at Lady Doctor Says. And she just goes into depth in this thread about the differences between the Deep Sea Challenger and the Titan. And it just really highlights how rinky-dink the operation was at Ocean Gate. Deep Sea Challenger, James Cameron's vessel, first of all, carries one person, even though it's about the same size, more or less, as the Titan. And the reason for that is because the rest of it is filled with <laughs> stuff. <laughs> with technology. It's like that episode of The Simpsons where uh, they're at Itchy and Scratchy Land and there's robots coming by in the parade and one of them takes the top of his head off and you see all of the robot <laughs> workings inside, all the wires and stuff. And Marge says to Homer, she's like, see, that's why your robot didn't work. <laughs> see all the stuff inside? That's why your robot didn't work. Like, it's very similar. Uh, the Deep Sea Challenger was, first of all, uh, tested to the maximum. Like, it has a spherical cockpit pod for the pilot. And that uh, in itself, James Cameron said, took years of design on the computer before the goddamn thing was even built. And the hull of this, they needed to find the right material that had the strength to withstand those pressures, but also would be light and buoyant. And they tested the various uh, deep sea diving foam materials, the ones that were certified for deep sea diving, and none of them withstood any of the testing. So one of the engineers on it invented his own. He invented a new material to use to build the outside hull of this vessel. They had for every for every system, one of the things she says in the thread is that they didn't go well, if X goes wrong, at every stage, they're like, when X goes wrong. So they had redundancies. Like if A goes wrong, then B kicks in. When B goes wrong, then C kicks in. They were yes. profoundly prepared for every possible disaster on every possible level, including, and I think most importantly, I mean, not most importantly, implosion is the most important, <laughs> but communication. Yes. Because that's one of the things that I think made people not know for so long um, that the Titan had just imploded because on so many of its trips, they lost communication with the vessel for 
hours. Yes. That was something that they had gotten used to. Yeah. So the ability to say, but oh, we lost communication. But they didn't fix it. After no, they never fixed it. After multiple times this had happened. Yes. That on multiple trips, they'd lost communications with the Titan. And they didn't bother to address that. They just accepted it as a thing that can happen. Whereas with Deep Sea Challenger, there's multiple communication methods in case the first one or for when the first one fails, there are backups. And and they're very robust communication as opposed to Titan where I believe they were communicating via text message. They were. They were. They were just texting and then... There was like an article I want to say in the New York Times about a passenger who'd been on the Titan three times, including trips to the Titanic, and he said... On every trip, they lost communications with the surface. The The striking thing about it, though, is that that doesn't have to happen. The knowledge and technology and engineering to make that not happen, they do exist. The people who created this and marketed it and put passengers on board it, they did not bother to create a better, safer product. Yeah, and I think that that's what we're seeing right now. And I'm starting to feel like this with everything, with every cost-cutting, with the WGA writers on strike. Like, sometimes things just take what they take to make happen. And this fantasy that you can do it quicker faster cheaper like and that it's somehow also then better of course i mean it's it's one thing when it's software you're designing like you'll hear about this new software company that's doing ride shares except instead of one driver it's like a van that can take multiple people and you're like dude you invented buses the bus you just invented buses you know like you you hear stuff like that all the time. These like Silicon Valley disruptors, think they're just reinventing the wheel, but they're not always doing it well. They're doing it like a shittier version of it. Yeah. This is, but this is that to the nth degree because people put their lives on the line yes. for it. They, yes. I can't, I, this is why I'm obsessed with this story and I can't get over it and can't stop thinking about it. Like adventure tourism, risk-taking tourism is one thing. I have mixed feelings about it, but I kind of understand where the impulse comes from. And like, hey, if you want to try to get uh, to the top of Mount Everest, you know the risks involved, you've done your homework and done your training, like, okay. But this feels like if you want to go see the Titanic wreckage, especially if you're a billionaire, look at James Cameron. If you want to do that, you can do that with less risk than what we saw here. Because James Cameron, I don't think I also understood that to sit in the, in his submersible for whatever, nine hours by himself operating this thing, he like was doing yoga for months. I mean, he knew he was going to have to stay crouched in this position for like nine hours. Yeah, it's a 43-inch like, cockpit where you have to be in like the fetal position the whole he's time. He's kind of a tall guy, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like... That's the other part of it where to get to some of these places, you too have to put in some labor. You right. too have to do some of this work to enter you into this. You can't just pay someone and call it done. No. Exactly. Like no. It's clear that he put in work 
also to build, like he didn't build it himself, but he was involved in gathering together the talent and knowledge base and like overseeing the project in whatever way he did. It took many years and yes. his own personal training and his, and his own risk. He took the risk on himself. He didn't charge other people to be passengers on it and take responsibility for that. He was like, it's my risk, <sighs> my adventure, whatever. Yeah. But I think that's what it comes down to uh, is wealthy people, like you said, they think they are immune from the laws of physics. They think they are, I mean, they're already immune from the laws of man. So why not also right. be immune to the laws of right. physics? But right. it, it turns out, no, there's actually a limit. Like John Jacob Astor found out, it doesn't matter how many millions or billions you have. The icy depths of the Atlantic do not care. All right. Well, listeners, we love you. Do not, under any circumstances, go into a submersible like this. Just, not like this. Or talk to us before you do this. Just check in yeah. with us. Just, just <laughs> let us know. And if you have that much money to do that, you should be <laughs> our patrons. You should yeah. go to patreon.com slash podcast. Let's start there. Because I think that even, even you know, if you want to go to our highest level, if you want to just be supporting us for $20 a month, you'll never even notice it gone. And I think it'll go a lot further for us than in terms of making good for the world. Oh, in, I mean, in terms of creating good. All of you people on the submersible wait list, just come on over to us. Come on over to us. It's right. so and much better you know over what? here. You don't even have to be on the submersible wait list. <laughs> join our Patreon. Let's be clear. There are all kinds of levels and tiers of membership. And everyone who joins can join us on the Sus Speakeasy or Discord. And we can get your feedback on this episode and on these topics and hear about what other stuff you'd like us to ruin. So please check it out. Patreon.com slash Podcast. You can also find us on all of the socials. Except for Blue Sky, because I need to get another invite code that we can then use for ourselves. Right. We, we are on Blue Sky. By the way, I don't know if the listeners have heard that update. I did get an invite code. And Maya is now on Blue Sky. Yeah, baby. You're welcome. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much. So, you can find us on any of the socials. You can email us at saucepodcast.gmail.com. We always, always love your feedback. And we always love your ideas for new episodes. If you want to reach me directly, I am at Gynostar on all the various platforms. You can find me at Maya Garantz anywhere you're looking for Maya Garantz. We look forward to hearing from you. Adios, amibas. Bye.